Katie Bly and you're listening to The Beacon, the Oxford International Relations Society podcast. In today's special episode, Stephen Walt gives a guest lecture to the Society on the topic, Where is US Foreign Policy Going? Walt is a Professor of International Relations at Harvard University and currently serves on the editorial boards of Foreign Policy and numerous international relations and security studies journals. Walt is known for proposing the balance of threat theory, in which states' alliance behaviour is determined by the threat they perceive from other states. States generally balance by allying against a perceived threat, although very weak states are likely to bandwagon with a rising threat to protect their own security. This worldview informs Walt's lecture as he begins talking about US President Donald Trump. And he has certainly not behaved like any of his predecessors in the office. Uh, but the real question is, is he going to make uh, as dramatic a difference as he promised? And, and if he does, will it be good for America? Will it be good for the world? Uh, I'm going to say, suggest that the answer to both questions is no. Um, he is, in fact, already reverting to some of the United States' worst tendencies. He's adding some unique mistakes of his own. So in some senses, we are getting the worst of both worlds. The United States is still pursuing a flawed foreign policy, but we're doing it with an impulsive, erratic, and ill-informed skipper at the helm of the ship of state. Um, So I want to start, though, by asking sort of how do we get to this place and look backwards a little bit. And part of the answer, not all of it, but part of it, is that the world we live in today is much worse than the world many people expected and in fact worse than the world we could have had had we made somewhat different choices in the past. And it's those accumulated mistakes that helped open the door for Donald Trump in 2016. Um, Some of you uh, will remember or have read about the way people were thinking back in the 1990s. Uh, The United States and the West had won the Cold War. Many people believed, genuinely believed, that the sort of American system of market-based liberal democracy was the only one that could really work in a globalized era. This was the famous unipolar moment. The world was converging towards us. The wind was at America's back. Our only problems were a few pesky dictators like Slobodan Milosevic and Saddam Hussein who hadn't gotten the memo yet uh, explaining how they should behave. And again, if one looks back to the world of 25 years ago, the United States was actually on good terms with all of the world's major powers, including China and Russia. Democracy was spreading worldwide. Iraq had been disarmed after the first Gulf War. UN inspectors were carting away its weapons of mass destruction equipment. Iran in the 1990s had no centrifuges enriching uranium. And the 1994 agreed framework with North Korea appeared to put a cap on its nuclear program as well. Globalization is spreading rapidly with the formation of the World Trade Organization, the opening up of financial markets. NATO was expanding eastward, as was the European Union, culminating in the creation of the euro, the consolidation of democracy in Eastern Europe. And last but not least, the Oslo Accords in 1993 gave many of us hope that we were finally on the verge of the always elusive Middle East peace. Well, given all that, it's not surprising that lots of smart people believed we were entering a new era of peace and prosperity under the benevolent leadership of the mighty United States.
Now look at the world we live in today. China's power and ambition has grown dramatically. It is now widely seen as a long-term challenger for the United States. Russia has seized Crimea and interfered in several other countries. Relations with Moscow are now worse than at any time since the end of the Cold War. Not surprisingly, Moscow and Beijing are cooperating in various ways to try and keep American power in check. Democracy is in retreat now, worldwide. According to Freedom House from New York, quote, democracy faced its most serious crisis in decades in 2017 as its basic tenets came under attack around the world. 71 countries suffered net declines in political rights and civil liberties. Only 35 registered gains. This marked the 12th consecutive year of a decline in global freedom. And by the way, just last year, the Economist magazine's uh, Democracy Index downgraded the United States from a full to a flawed democracy, which is something Americans might want to reflect upon. Since 1993, North Korea, India, and Pakistan have all tested nuclear weapons, and Iran went from having no centrifuges enriching uranium in the year 2000 to 19,000 of them in 2015 before agreeing to cut that down to about 7,000 as part of the nuclear agreement that Donald Trump just tore up. But Iran is, in fact, a latent nuclear power with the ability to get a bomb if it ever really wants to. Last but not least, repeated attempts to broker an Israeli-Palestinian peace agreement were all humiliating failures. The number of Israeli settlers has tripled since 1993, and the two-state solution that was sought by Clinton, by Bush, and by Obama is farther away than ever, maybe impossible now. Oh, one or two more things. The United States was attacked, of course, on September 11th. We responded by invading Afghanistan, then Iraq, and launching a global war on terror. None of these projects went particularly well. And the United States is, in fact, still fighting in more than a dozen countries with no end in sight. The rest of the Middle East is in flames, and American interference helped create failed states in Libya and Yemen and Syria as well. Lastly, in 2008, a financial crisis began in the United States, which punctured this idea that Wall Street and the U.S. Treasury were somehow better at running a modern economy than anybody else was. That, of course, triggered the Euro crisis, which had deep effects on Europe as well. So my point is, back in 2016, when Donald Trump ran for president and he called U.S. foreign policy a complete and total disaster, which he said in one of his speeches, and when he accused the foreign policy establishment of being out of touch and unaccountable, a lot of Americans nodded their heads in agreement wasn't the only reason he got elected, but it was part of his indictment. Now, I wouldn't argue that U.S. foreign policy is solely responsible for all of those negative trends that I just talked about, but I think we had a big hand in a lot of them. In particular, those setbacks are the result of the strategy the United States chose to follow after the Cold War ended. And I'm going to call this one of liberal hegemony. Right? It's liberal not in the sense of being left-wing, but rather because it seeks to use American power to defend and spread the traditional principles 
of individual freedom, democratic governments, rule of law, market-based economics. The strategy is one of hegemony because it sees the United States as the indispensable nation that is uniquely qualified to bring these wonderful principles to other countries um, and to bring other states into a set of alliances and institutions that the United States can lead. When you think about it, this is a highly revisionist grand strategy. Instead of defending our own territory and perhaps helping uphold the balance of power in a few key regions, Liberal hegemony seeks to spread democracy, markets, and other liberal principles around the world, peacefully if possible, if necessary, with the use of force. In other words, it assumes the United States has the right, the responsibility, and the wisdom to manage local politics almost anywhere. And since the end of the Cold War, this approach has commanded a consensus in both political parties, Republicans and Democrats alike, inside the Defense Department, the State Department, the intelligence services, and especially in the think tanks and other foreign policy organizations that dominate intellectual life in Washington. Why is there such a consensus? Well, in part because many of these people genuinely believe in these ideals, but also because this very ambitious foreign policy enhances their power and status and gives them lots to do. Unfortunately, this strategy is deeply flawed. Liberal hegemony expands the number of places the United States has to defend. And in fact, by 2016, the United States was formally committed to defending more countries around the world than at any time in its history. Trying to spread democracy inevitably threatens other countries that aren't democracies, and their governments start looking for ways to interfere with what the United States is doing. For example, some of them try to get weapons of mass destruction as a way of deterring the United States from various types of regime change. Third, this strategy assumes we know how to create stable and effective democracies in the wake of a regime change. But I think the past 25 years has shown pretty clearly that we don't. Instead, it leads to failed states, costly occupations, local resistance, and sometimes terrorism. Lastly, opening and expanding global markets did produce benefits for millions of people around the world, but it didn't produce them for everyone. Inequality rose dramatically, and the global financial system became less stable, as we saw it in 2008. And again, by 2016, those accumulated failures helped open the door for the Trump candidacy. So let me now talk about what he's been up to. Well, what did he promise back in the campaign? He said, well, America first would be his guiding principle. He said that NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, the Trans-Pacific Partnership were all very bad trade deals, had to be rejected. He said NATO was obsolete and had to start paying us if we were going to defend them. He was deeply critical of the European Union as an institution. He praised the Brexit vote here in Great Britain. He embraced right-wing nationalists like Marine Le Pen in France. He said rivalry with Russia and China was not inevitable. And in fact, Vladimir Putin was one of the few foreign leaders he never criticized. He called the nuclear deal with Iran the worst deal ever. And he expressed no interest whatsoever in promoting democracy or human rights at all. Now, when you think about it, this approach, as he articulated it, was a complete repudiation of liberal hegemony, as I just described it, which is why the entire foreign policy establishment in the United States, Democrats, of course, 
but also many prominent, experienced, senior Republican officials uh, openly opposed him, with uh, over 100 Republicans signing open letters denouncing Trump's candidacy, and in one of them declaring him utterly unfit for office. These were Republicans writing, not Democrats. Um, so it's not surprising, given what he said he was likely to do, that he got this reaction. Then the question is, what did he end up doing? And here I would divide the Trump presidency into sort of three phases so far. Just as a footnote, it's unusual for any president to have gone through three distinct phases already uh, before he's reached even his second year in office. Well, he starts off with actually some very radical steps. He appoints a controversial former general, Mike Flynn, as his national security advisor. Flynn brings in a bunch of other inexperienced oddballs, like uh, Sebastian Gorka, a self-styled terrorism expert. He left the director of national intelligence and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff off the National Security Council. They had always traditionally been on there. And he put his chief political strategist, Stephen Bannon, who'd run his campaign, on the National Security Council, which was also an unprecedented move. He put Rex Tillerson as Secretary of State, despite Tillerson's lack of prior diplomatic experience. And he also declined to fill dozens of positions, especially in the State Department, but also elsewhere in the government bureaucracy, saying at one point, they're unnecessary, and saying to another interviewer, I'm the only one that matters. Don't pay any attention to those positions. On his third day in office, he abandoned the Trans-Pacific Partnership, this large multinational trade agreement that the Obama administration had negotiated. A few weeks later, he left the Paris Climate Change Accord. He continued to tweet out provocative statements on a constant basis and didn't hesitate to pick fights with foreign leaders, including a number of close U.S. allies, such as Theresa May. Throughout, I think it's fair to say his entire style has been radically different than any other president. But that brings us to the second phase, when the foreign policy establishment starts to rein him in. Over time, it became increasingly clear that the strategy maybe wasn't changing so much. First of all, within seven months, the radicals in his administration were all gone and replaced by more mainstream figures. Uh, Mike Flynn, for example, lasted 24 days as National Security Advisor, setting a record that I believe will never be broken, um, and replaced by H.R. McMaster, a general who's very much within the sort of mainstream uh, tradition. Uh, uh, after some wobbling on NATO, the U.S. commitment to NATO was reaffirmed repeatedly, including repeatedly by Trump himself, that the United States was firmly committed to NATO and to Article 5. Our, the American commitment to its traditional allies in the Middle East was, if anything, even deeper towards Egypt, towards Israel, towards Saudi Arabia, and others. So no substantial change there in the Middle East. In this phase, he didn't tear up the North American Free Trade Agreement. He started to renegotiate it, which, by the way, it needed. It was an uh, almost 20-year-old agreement. It was in time to update it in various ways. He didn't start a trade war in this period. And in this period, he didn't end the Iran Treaty, although he flirted with the idea on several occasions. He did at one point recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital, but this was, at least in my view, not as dramatic a break with the past as some people think. Some critics have said that this decision hurt the peace process, to which the only answer can be, what 
peace process. The two-state solution is almost certainly dead. And Trump, by agreeing to move the uh, embassy to Jerusalem, was really just making clear what everybody already knew. The United States is not even-handed with that particular conflict and is not going to use the leverage at its disposal to try and encourage a solution. So it's a change in US policy, but mostly just removing uh, the hypocrisy to some degree. Just like President Obama, Trump bowed to military pressure and agreed to increase the US troop levels in Afghanistan. No matter how much he denied it, no matter how much he had promised that the United States was going to get out of the nation-building business, we are still doing nation-building with Trump as president. He criticized Syria, North Korea, Iran, and China for their human rights abuses while refusing to criticize various American allies. Now, this is deeply hypocritical, but it's not really all that different from what Clinton, Bush, and Obama did. It tended to be much more critical of American adversaries on human rights grounds than we were critical of American friends. Which brings me to the third phase, which we are now in. Two months ago, he fired Tillerson as Secretary of State, replaced him with CIA Director Mike Pompeo, a former congressman, very hawkish. Then John Bolton replaced H.R. McMaster as National Security Advisor, and Gina Haspel, who had run torture sites for the Bush administration, just recently confirmed to replace Pompeo as Director of the CIA. What I want to emphasize here is that Pompeo, Haspel, and even Bolton are not fringe characters. They are not some strange oddballs from the margins of the American political community. They are certainly hawks, they're certainly hardliners, but they're well within the consensus. John Bolton went to Yale, got his uh, law degree at Yale Law School, worked for a major, uh, very conventional DC law firm, Covington and Burling, has spent most of his career at the American Enterprise Institute, which was a major think tank in Washington. He served in the Reagan administration, the Bush administration, and the second Bush administration. Right? When he publishes articles, he publishes them in radical fringe publications like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. So yes, he's a hardliner, even an extreme hardliner, but he's not a pariah within the American system. He's a well-accepted member of that system, and he is now Trump's closest foreign policy advisor. Uh, at, the, at about the same time, the National Economic Council director, Gary Cohn, resigned over Trump's decision to begin imposing tariffs on steel and aluminum imports, which meant trade policy was increasingly in the hands of more hardline protectionists as well. Um, and to everyone's surprise, then, those moves are all accompanied by a sudden thaw with North Korea in response to a peace initiative that was begun by South Korean President Moon. A year ago, Kim Jong-un of North Korea and Trump were trading, trading insults on Twitter, right, with Trump referring to Kim as little rocket man, right, and Kim referring to Trump as that dotard president. So that was the level of diplomacy we were engaged in a year ago. But suddenly, Kim invites Trump to meet with him face to face, and Trump accepts. They're supposed to meet in Singapore on June 12th, unless, of course, something does it in, and there's now some uncertainty about whether or not this is actually uh, going to take place. But at least so far, the, the meeting is supposed to go ahead as planned. And then finally, in what I would argue is his most significant move to date, uh, a couple of weeks ago, Trump ignored 
allied pleas here in Europe to maintain the agreement that blocks Iran from enriching uranium and acquiring nuclear weapons, with Trump calling it flawed at its core. Uh, and now he is, of course, threatening to sanction any European countries or European businesses that continue to do business with Iran as that deal uh, mandates that they should. So what are, we, what are we to make of all of this? Um, and where is it likely to lead and what should we do about it? Well, with respect to Iran, let me just say about Iran and North Korea. With respect to Iran, I think it's clear that Trump has, in fact, embraced the familiar traditional neoconservative program of regime change, the same instinct that eventually led us to war in Iraq. If his goal was stopping Iran from getting the bomb, then we would have stayed in the nuclear agreement because that's precisely what that agreement does. In fact, we would have worked to try and improve it and worked maybe even to try and make it permanent. It's only a 15-year agreement, but you wouldn't tear it up. If his goal was stopping some of the other things Iran is doing in the region, then we should also stay in the agreement because it's easier to stop those things if Iran doesn't have nuclear weapons. And then you would want to work with our allies and with Russia and possibly even with China to try and bring more pressure to bear on Iran to alter its behavior. By leaving the agreement, Trump is trying to squeeze Iran economically and he'll try to force Europe to go along with that. He thinks if he does so, the regime will collapse or it will eventually get tired of this whole charade and restart its nuclear program, which would then provide the pretext for military action. And make no mistake, John Bolton has openly advocated precisely this course of action in the past. So there's nothing particularly surprising about this. It has also, of course, put the United States and its allies in Europe on something of a collision course. But this is not a radical departure for American foreign policy. Instead, it's really a return to the very aggressive unilateralism of George W. Bush's first term. Not his second term, but his first term as well. Something we've seen actually before. I think, by the way, it's foolish for two different reasons. Iran is not going to collapse if we bring greater pressure. Greater pressure is actually more likely to consolidate public support for the regime. Uh, and bombing Iran will certainly lead the population not to embrace us as liberators, but to rally more closely around the regime. But it also assumes that even if regime change happened, we could guide their local results, and we wouldn't get a lot of negative unintended consequences. I would just remind you that Israel tried to do that when it invaded Lebanon in 1982, and it ended up creating Hezbollah. The United States tried to do that by invading Iraq in 2003. We ended up with ISIS. Right? The United States, the United Kingdom, and France tried to do this by toppling Muammar Gaddafi in 2011. We ended up with anarchy. Saudi Arabia is trying to do this by bombing Yemen now, and they're not getting anywhere either. This policy makes it more likely, finally, that Iran will decide it needs nuclear weapons, because look at the respect Kim Jong-un is getting, because he has them, and look at the treatment Iran is getting without them. And of course, if Iran starts getting nuclear weapons, Saudi Arabia is likely to think about getting nuclear weapons itself. They've already said so explicitly. So in fact, this course of action could easily lead to the spread of nuclear weapons in the Middle East. Who's the big winner in all of this? Well, it's China, of course. The United States will still be bogged down in the Middle East. Iran will move closer to Beijing. US relations with Europe will be strained. 
As the French statesman Talleyrand would have said, this policy is worse than a crime, it is a blunder. With respect to North Korea, I would just make four points. North Korea is not talking to us because we've put unprecedented pressure on them. It's dealing with us, in fact, from a position that it regards as a position of strength because they've completed enough nuclear tests and enough missile tests to have more confidence in their own nuclear deterrent. Second, by my reading, thus far, Kim has outmaneuvered Trump. He has gotten Donald Trump to agree to a face-to-face -face meeting where Trump will have to essentially negotiate with him as an equal. Kim's father never got that, never got a face-to-face -face meeting with an American president. Kim's grandfather, who founded North Korea, never got a face-to-face -face meeting with an American president. Right? Remember, by the way, Kim is a man who murdered several people in order, in, including his own half-brother, to consolidate his, uh, his hold on power. And Trump has now been acting more nicely towards him than he's acted towards many long-standing American allies. And the question is, what did Kim give up in order to get all of this? Nothing. He hasn't given up anything yet. It's in fact Trump who's now under pressure, if this meeting actually occurs, to come away with something tangible. Right? So thus far, I would argue the score is sort of Kim 1, Trump 0 in this. I don't know how the negotiation, if it ever happens, will turn out. But thus far, it looks, uh, looks like Kim is uh, at least winning the preliminary rounds. And by the way, if they do reach an agreement, it's going to have to look a whole lot better than the Iran deal. Right, if he comes back with an agreement that's obviously less of a concession on North Korea's part than Iran made, it'll be a little bit hard for Trump to justify that. Third, Kim is not going to give up his nuclear arsenal. Uh, he knows what happened to Gaddafi. He knows what happened to Saddam Hussein. Um, and by the way, he's also just seen Trump tear up the agreement that was signed uh, with Iran. So why should Kim believe any assurances that Trump might give him, any promises Trump might make to him? And for that matter, why should anyone at this point? You know, if I were advising Kim, I would say don't do this for anything less than a formal treaty ratified by the U.S. Senate. Right? Anything less than that is a promise that a subsequent American president or this American president could change their mind about any time they wanted. Finally, this whole business has undermined confidence of our allies in Asia who were already upset when Trump left the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So again, the winner here is probably China, which would like a freer hand in Asia and would like to see the American role there decline. So the bottom line I'm trying to suggest here is that Trump's foreign policy, however erratic it is, is not, in fact, a radical departure. Um, it's really reverting back to what we saw in the first Bush administration. But this time, the whole process is being managed by a man whose White House has been described by one senior Republican politician as a snake pit, and by one White House staffer, quoted anonymously, as the most, most toxic work environment on the planet, where the turnover rate among senior staff is the highest ever recorded in US history. The good news is he has not yet done anything quite as dumb as invading Iraq, that's good, but there's no question that he has diminished America's standing around the world, I think, pretty substantially. Let me just give you one piece of evidence supporting that. 
Near the end of Obama's second term, a survey of 37 different countries around the world was conducted. And in that survey, on average, 64% of those surveys said they had confidence in American leadership. So, end of Obama, 37 countries, on average, 64% have confidence in the United States. They re-ran the survey after six months of Donald Trump. The percentage had fallen to 22%, 64 to 22. And by the way, in the same survey, more people around the world believed that Xi Jinping in China and Vladimir Putin in Russia were, quote, more likely to do the right thing in world affairs than Donald Trump. I should add, by the way, that none of these leaders ranked very highly on that question, but they were ahead of him. So let me briefly close this off by trying to suggest what we ought to do instead. Um, how should I, how do I think Europe, to include Great Britain, um, uh, how should Europe respond to all of this, and then what should America be doing differently? Um, to be very blunt, I think it is time for Europe to stop deferring as much to the United States, uh, because right now we can't be trusted, and our policies are not in Europe's best interests. To be specific, the Europeans have to become less reliant on the United States for security and for protection. And that's not as hard as you might think, because Europe, together, has more than 500 million people, a combined economy that is the size of the United States, and it doesn't face any external threats it cannot handle. Um, worth remembering that if you just take the European members of NATO, not counting the United States, just NATO's European members, those countries spend four times more than Russia on defense every year. They don't spend it very efficiently. They don't spend it very well. But the idea that Europe cannot afford to mount a reasonable defense against any possible external threat space, I think just doesn't stand up. So again, it's time for Europe to, over time, take more responsibility for its own security, not rely on Uncle Sam. Second, the EU should make it clear that it will continue the Iran deal, as should the other signatories, like Britain and France, Germany, and continue to trade and invest there. If the United States imposes sanctions, the EU should retaliate and make American businesses pay as well. That's going to be costly. It will be costly for us. It will be costly for you. But sometimes one has to pay a price to defend vital interests and long-term interests. And finally, European countries should make it clear that they would not support an American attack on Iran and would not allow the United States to use military facilities in Europe for that purpose. There's a risk that this will cause a really serious rift in transatlantic relations. But I guess the point I would make is this appears to be an administration that has zero respect for its European partners anyway, and it's going to keep doing things that harm European interests. I'm sorry to have to say this, but if the United States doesn't come to its senses, I don't see why Europe should go along with our latest march of folly. What should the United States do? Um, I'm not saying this is going to happen, but this is my fairy tale. Um, we should start by remembering we are still the luckiest country on the planet. Uh, and really the most secure great power in history. We have a large population, a diverse, sophisticated, innovative economy, very capable military forces, thousands of nuclear weapons. There are no nuclear armed states anywhere near us, things like that. And we are separated from the other major powers by these two enormous oceans, and those oceans still matter in a variety of important ways. So given that remarkable position of security, our main goal is to prevent any other country from being in such a favorable position itself. 
from being a regional hegemon, from being secure in its own neighborhood, because if it was like that, if they were as secure as we were, they could start running around the world getting into trouble the way the United States does. They could start projecting power outside their region freely, possibly including into the Western Hemisphere, which from an American perspective would at least be uncomfortable and unfamiliar. Well, for the foreseeable future, China is the only country that could possibly aspire to that. So the United States should focus primarily on China and focus on leading a coalition of Asian powers to prevent China from dominating Asia. That's in those countries' interest. They don't want to be dominated by China. Uh, and that's why the TPP decision was such a blunder and why gutting the State Department has been foolish as well, because this is mostly a diplomatic job of managing political relations among countries like India and Australia and Japan and the Philippines and Vietnam, Korea, etc. As for the Middle East, our main interest there is a balance of power. We shouldn't try to control it ourselves. We shouldn't try to take sides in the struggle between Sunnis and Shia. We're not going to be able to play referee there. We shouldn't try to take sides in the struggle between Saudi Arabia and Iran. I'd go one step further. Instead of having special relationships with any countries in the Middle East, like Egypt or Israel or Saudi Arabia, we should have normal relations with each of those countries, and we should have normal relations with Iran. Because in fact, if the United States had a normal relationship with Iran, it would enhance our leverage with everyone else. When we're talking to diplomats in Riyadh or in Tel Aviv, I want them to know that other Americans are talking to people in Iran, and vice versa. When we're in Tehran, I want them to know we're talking to the Saudis and we're talking to the Israelis as well. That's where you get leverage. Treating Iran like a pariah, of course, gives us less leverage on everyone. One last point. The United States should continue to promote democracy and human rights because we do believe in those things, but mostly not by trying to impose them on others, but by setting a good example at home. Spreading democracy via regime change does not work very well, but creating a society in North America that others could look at and want to emulate would be good for us and also, I think, good for others, too, over time. And the great irony here is the American people would almost certainly support a more sensible set of policies like that. That's what they thought they were voting for in 1992, in 2000, in 2008, and in 2016. Getting out of nation building, reducing our military footprint in the Middle East, focusing more attention on Asia would all make sense and it would free up additional resources that we could use in various ways back in the United States. And I think if Trump had pursued a policy like that, it actually would have maintained the support of his base, but actually won him some people from the other side over time. But he doesn't have the temperament to do that. He's picking fights to no good purpose, encouraging instability in places that we would be better off if they were tranquil, continuing to fuel anti-Americanism in places where it doesn't naturally uh, take root, and generally act so erratically that even close friends of the United States are starting to lose confidence that they have any idea what the United States is really all about. And that's not in America's interest, and it's not going to make a more tranquil world. So when I think about the next two and a half years or so, I am reminded of something that Chancellor Otto von Bismarck allegedly said um, namely, that there appears to be a special providence that looks after drunkards, fools, and the United States of America. 
more than ever before, I am really hoping that Bismarck was right. <laughs> Thank you very much. I would be happy to take some questions.